Well, welcome to Columbia University. Uh, I welcome you on behalf of the university and the Columbia Center for New Media Teaching and Learning. Um, we're happy to have you all here, and uh, we're looking forward to an interesting day. Um, in, the, in the late 60s, uh, it was customary among young people, and, and frankly, I'm not sure whether the tradition has, has managed to survive, uh, for them to uh, take off for the entire summer. And very often, with very little money, and with a backpack and uh, trek across Europe, go across even places like Siberia, and uh, come back to college or university life at the, at the end of the summer. And um, you need that context in order to understand the New Yorker joke uh, that depicted two people uh, moving across a kind of deserted plain uh, and the way the cartoon is constructed, they seem to be approaching one another. And when they get close to one another, uh, one says to the other, West End Bar? And the, the joke was, of course, that everybody who went to universities in the late 60s at some time or another had passed through the West End Bar. Well, if that cartoon were reconstructed today, it's very possible that the caption that would be under the cartoon would be, aren't you a friend of Peter Kaufman's? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, uh, uh, I, I'd like to begin, I'm so glad that that worked. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to begin by uh, thanking Peter for what we know will be, as always is the case, a, a banquet of ideas, and I frankly don't know anyone who could assemble the group of people that Peter has consistently assembled for, uh, for, these, uh, for these activities. And uh, uh, the uh, only thing I told him he can't do is he can't charge tuition on the way out of the conference. Okay. I'd also like to thank uh, Kathy uh, from the Hewlett Foundation who has provided the resources to make uh, Peter's uh, work with us at Columbia possible, uh, which also includes uh, this conference itself. And lastly, but certainly not least, I'd like to thank, and I don't see where he is, uh, Maurice Matisse, my co-founder and co-director in the back next to the camera, uh, who makes almost everything we do possible, including this conference, and the entire staff of people from the Columbia Center for New Media Teaching and Learning, who are too many to name, but they're around the periphery, as well as in the audience. Uh, who make everything work so well. That's a prediction that I'm certain will turn out to be uh, a, a correct one. Let me begin my comments, which will probably be completely orthogonal to the content of the conference, but nonetheless, these are uh, my thoughts on technology in the present moment. Um, let me remind you of a, of a poet whose name is Karl Spittler who won the Nobel Prize in 1919. Uh, his main work, he was a Swiss, and his main work was uh, called the Olympic Spring. And in the Olympic Spring, he depicts the king of the guard, gods, Saturn at that time, because the new generation of gods had not taken over yet, walking around the heavens, 
feeling really very good about himself with his arms folded and his robes and clouds behind him. And then all of a sudden, quick second, he notices something in the sky he'd never seen before. And it turned out it was, he looks over and, and it, it's a zipper. So he pulls the zipper back, he peels back the clouds, and he sees behind what he always thought were the heavens themselves, giant machinery that really was in control of everything that he thought he was in control of. Now, this was a critical moment for Saturn. He had to decide what to do. Well, like any good person in power, what he decided to do was to see whether anyone else had noticed the zipper in the clouds. And when he noticed that no one did, he zipped that right back, he smoothed it over, he folded his arms again, and he continued to walk around with the same exact look on his face, but with a completely different feeling inside. One of the responses to technology, really for 200 years, by many people, has been one of denial. But what I would like to talk about is how we have now defined two new responses that are seemingly new, not really new, that are competing and interrelated mythologies, responses that represent what I would call our dance with technology. They've become totalizing narratives. They're part of our popular media, as well as our higher expressions of thought and letters. One is related to the utopianism associated with digital media, new technologies that predicts a new age on the one hand, and another more dystopic in character that predicts in its most extravagant expressions the end of the world. The utopian, and the sentence I wrote here for myself is either a conscious or unconscious descendant of the Hegelian evolutionary enlightenment-oriented past a mouthful that I'm not sure I exactly know what means at this present moment, but perhaps more concretely characterized by our wonderful colleague who was recently deceased, Jim Carrey, in his article, Technology and Ideology, The Case of the Telegraph. He calls the response to technology in that age, in the case of the telegraph, the electrical sublime, a religious-like belief in the power of technology to provide us with a kind of deliverance. Carrie quotes Gardner Spring, a preacher of that era. He says, we are on the border of spiritual harvest. Thought now travels by steam and electric wire. These are familiar words. I would suggest that the temperate tone and spirit of much of the discourse surrounding Web 2.0 and digital technology in general has a very similar character. Consider what is implied in the following titles themselves. I'm going to try not to comment, but just try to take in the titles. A wealth of networks. A wisdom of networks. Infotopia. The world is flat. And a little comment here, and therefore everyone's oyster. The age of spiritual machines. The singularity is near, and the list could actually go on and on. Perhaps the operative comment is the one that C. Wright Mills provides us with in the sociological imagination when he says, 
science, as it turns out, is not a technological second coming. That its techniques and rationality are given a central place in a society does not mean that men live reasonably and without myth, fraud, and superstition. Universal education may lead to technological idiocy and nationalist provinciality, rather than to informed and independent intelligence. The mass distribution of historic culture may not lift the level of cultural sensibility, but rather merely banalize it and compete mightily with the chance for creative innovation. Now let's turn to the other totalizing myth, the counterpart to utopia, the dystopic. It too is either a conscious or unconscious descendant of a much more pessimistic tradition in social thought from Adam Smith to contemporary social theorists such as Richard Sennett or a little further back uh, Michel Foucault. And it finds expression also in a range of, of different uh, forms, fiction, science, mass media. Novels that I've recently read, Cormac McCarthy, The Road, the story of a father and a son trying to survive and maintain hope in a world rendered a wasteland. Jim Crace, The Pest House. The story of two young adults trying to save themselves also in a world wasted by disaster. Or Matthew Sharp's Jamestown, the novel, a book that the author himself calls a post-annihilation narrative. Vast literatures in the domain of environmental science, some very scientific, some less so, all predicting the end and perhaps most poignantly captured by a recent Times article uh, about the gnawing away of the land itself at a particular place in, in England and the effect it's having on the lives of people. And equally vast literature on the fact that the earth is not only not flat, but gradually being forced into a bimodal form of injustice, returning us to a 21st century form of feudalism. Think about television. I missed the end of Heroes last night. But television with Heroes in 24 as two examples, both envisioning nuclear catastrophes in American cities. And the past TV helped us to digest national disasters by trivializing them, uh, particularly after the Vietnam War. Every Every uh, uh, series had some kind of plot line that was related to Vietnam that somehow gradually, in a sense, provided us with a kind of national digestion of a series of events that were intolerable to the people who experienced them. But now what we have is TV is preparing us for the worst, so the trivialization is prospective or protreptic, as the ancients would have said. Well, these utopian and dystopic mythologies are symptomatic of our deepest-seated fears and hopes about the direction of human events, which we acknowledge is deeply dependent on the power of technology in our lives. They together are our ghost dance. As for the Hopi Indians in a threatened world, they together give expression to the fear of what might be extinction, as well as our childlike hope for a salvation. Yet neither provides effective guidance in the operational dimensions of our professional lives. We as educators and scholars and allied actors of all kinds still deal with daily choices that are burdened with histories and rooted in habitual practice. I would like to propose that the reinvention of our shelves should begin 
with an analysis of those histories and a reinvention of those practices that define our way of being in the world. Let me give a brief example, and it can only be brief. The problem of the journalist at the present time and the education of journalists in the age of new media. Quoting Bill Moyers, quoting Michael Schutzen, who is a colleague of ours at, at Columbia, quote, Michael Schutzen, one of the leading scholars of communications in America, who writes in the current Columbia Journalism Review, that while all media matter, some matter more than others. And for the sake of democracy, print still counts, especially print that devotes resources to gathering news. Network TV matters, he said. Cable TV matters, he said. But when it comes to original investigation and reporting, newspapers are for Schutzen the most important media. But newspapers are purposely dumbing down, driven down, says Schutzen, by Wall Street, whose collective devotion to an informed citizenry is nil and seems determined to eviscerate those papers. Despite the profusion of new information platforms on cable, on the internet, on radio, blogs, podcasts, YouTube, and MySpace, among others, the resources for solid original journalistic work both investigative and interpretive are contracting rather than expanding. So the question is, as Schutzen and Moyers would have it, how can we preserve the classic role of the journalist as a form of public conscience as the economies of the world, driven by new technologies, play havoc with traditional practice and create pressures to compromise standards? Is journalism reborn and democratized through the new web modalities? Or is it a dissipation of energy, destructive of the public sphere? A host of specific questions. What is the nature of narrative in the age of multimedia? Can we preserve the best of what we did and still report on the web? What are the new tools that allow for new ways to discover the facts, the first task of the journalist? And what is the nature of presentation when it is possible to provide readers with the capacity to manipulate the data itself of reportage? How should we educate the journalists of the future to prepare for the changing universe? Should journalists be educated the same way as businessmen and lawyers through the use of case studies that allow for a higher level of reflectiveness that go beyond practice? What is the place of simulation? The only thing that we are absolutely certain of is that redefining the profession is also redefining preparation for it. The challenge is, how do you introduce an element of mindful practice and creation into a historical process that is reshaping itself dynamically and swiftly? And that is the general question. How do we remain masters of our fate? So what should we do, those of us who have to act each day in environments equally complex as that is journalism, those who are educators, those who are people who work in cultural institutions, the full panoply of human enterprises. Here are my simple rules. As educators and producers of culture, we should choose to be in the middle of things and derive our interventions from the problems and challenges of the actual circumstances. We call this design research at the Columbia Center for New Media, a form of research that quickly yields forms of practice to be just as quickly critiqued and changed. 
Be aware of the size of the investment needed to do anything of consequence in a sustained way, those of you who are from foundations. We consistently underestimate what it takes to reinvent education and to reshape our cultural institutions and our mediating institutions and the human professions. But rarely blink an eye, rarely blink an eye at what it takes to fund the military and its destructive mission. Two billion dollars were invested in producing simulations in order to be able to anticipate the events of the first Iraqi invasion. And Norman Schwarzkopf said it was almost as if he had already done it. Well, what if we spent two billion dollars building simulations of human engagement in order to support the emergence of new forms of professional practice? Neither a utopian nor a dystopic be. But if your utopian urge is too strong, use it to fuel your imagination so that you can get past the jargon that imprisons our perception and our capacity to glimpse new horizons. Lastly, for encouragement, remember what Hannah Arendt has told us in her work on revolution. It was only the rise of technology and not the rise of modern political ideas as such which refuted the old and terrible truth that only violence and rule over others could make some men free. Arendt was speaking about other technologies, and now it's our turn to make our media and our technologies further expand the domain of freedom and human well-being. I'm excited by the prospect of learning from you at this conference and Delighted to welcome you once again on behalf of Columbia and the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning. And uh, I, I look forward to many conversations, any conference that uh, Peter has put together. Much more happens in the interstices of the conference than happens from, from the podium. And I just want to also say that this podium is prejudiced from a technological perspective, since I chose not to use a computer or slides or images. I had to use the computer itself, well, actually the, whatever this is, the, the Tron up here, as, a, uh, as something to hold my papers up so that my glasses could get the right focal line. But uh, thank you for your attention, and uh, I guess uh, uh, next on the list is uh, Kathy Cassillay from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, a person who's been very generous in representing the foundation and supporting our conference. Uh, Kathy. Um, when I saw the first draft of this agenda, I said, Peter, you have three people doing welcomes. Just take me off. And I thought he had. But then I opened it last week, and I saw I was back on. So my comments will be brief. We have, obviously, a lot of knowledge in this room, and we want to get to that as soon as possible. Um, before I begin, I'd first like to introduce Mike Smith. Mike Smith is the Program Director for Education at the Hewlett Foundation. He has very much spearheaded the work at ULIT in the open educational resources area, which is an area that we've been investing in over the past five years. And as, we've, as the foundation and the trustees and the president have supported the work that the program staff have done in open educational resources, our end goal has really been to try to equalize access to knowledge. So that's the big high-level goal of which we drill down every day to figure out how do we make a difference to reach that goal. And not only are we trying to equalize access to knowledge, but it's really about improving teaching and learning. 
Um, what we know now is that the world is changing very quickly, very dynamically, as uh, Fred, excuse me, Frank just mentioned. And when we take the world of a journalist and how quick and dynamic and innovative the world is, how are our institutions keeping up to the changes that are happening? And if we look at the world of both K-12 in the United States and higher institutions, we haven't yet integrated technology in what we know is happening with students in their home lives, which is very separate. So in some ways, we now have these separate um, but parallel tracks going on. And the question is, how do we begin to integrate it so that we can really create a robust system of teaching and learning? So we have um, all the video that is happening, completely engaging, completely participatory, is exactly what kids love. It teaches them. They become the producers of knowledge and not just the empty vessels, which are the consumers of knowledge. And it creates uh, a completely different dynamic. And then putting them up on YouTube and MySpace. But we haven't yet integrated that into the classroom in a very exciting way. And until we do that, we'll have these two separate tracks that we really need to begin to think harder and harder about how to merge. And the other two tracks that are happening are these grassroots tracks that are happening. And then the institutional tracks that are changing. We have many institutions who are now engaging in open educational resources, open courseware, open video. And again, the question is how do we begin to make that much more pervasive as opposed to just a few examples that are out there in society. Um, and just kind of at, and just one last point I want to make is we enter this world, one of the biggest pieces is not only about producing and putting out great content, but it's really about discoverability and use. And that the end user, the person searching the internet who's trying to find that gem, can find that gem of what they're looking for, whether it be an audio, a video, text, course materials. And this has been a problem that's really plagued the field. This was certainly an area that when we explored the field five years ago to figure out where ULIP could make a contribution to the landscape, what we saw was that there were many gems out there, but the gems were very, very difficult to find. And th still there are many gems out there but for the average teacher or the average faculty who may not have the kind of time that we hope to be able to find those gems is still very difficult. Uh, we've been working with uh, an internet search company, um, Google in particular, but it can be other internet search uh, companies as well to begin to address these issues of usability and discoverability. So we will be creating an archive with CC Learn, Creative Commons Learn, which focus will be on the teaching and learning aspects of open educational resources, and compiling a database of open URLs. And in the next four weeks or so, we want to compile a minimum of 5,000 URLs. We want to have 10,000 ideally within perhaps two months. And they will begin to create a OER search, so that when you type in what you're looking for, whether it be algebra, you can have it sorted across different categories and we'll be relying on the open educational resources community to help identify <coughs> what those categories are. Are they video, are they audio, are they courseware, are they lesson plans, are they translations? And um, so there's an uh, engineer at Google who's very excited about this. They set, spend a percentage of their time on this. But this database will actually be used across. So if Yahoo wants to pick it up or MSN wants to pick it up, we'd be able to do that across the platforms. So once we identify the specifications of what we want, um, I'll be sure that I'm in touch with Peter. And Peter can certainly send it out to the list of everyone who's here. What we'd love you to do is just go in and populate some great URLs so that we have the full range of content 
as an early beta for this um, site. And this will obviously be corrected and used over time, but the idea is that as a, as a first step, we still don't yet have a way to find the high quality content of open educational resources. It's still dif difficult to find and to search. Um, and one step at a time, once we have this uh, piece underway and figured out, then we can begin to move on to other pieces around recommendation systems and being able to kind of add the lens of the different viewers who use the open content. So with that, I'd just like to welcome you here. I'd particularly like to thank Peter. I know it's been an enormous amount of work uh, putting this uh, meeting together, and they're always engaging, so we're delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Frank, Kathy, and deeply grateful to the Hewlett Foundation for its uh, support of this meeting and uh, this year-long project, uh, and to Frank Moretti, Maurice Matisse, and others at this extraordinary center here at Columbia, uh, whose wisdom, whose work with the magic of new media and education is just so exciting, as you'll see over these next two days, and to all of our participants who have come uh, to visit with us this week. Last week, a number of things happened that bear some relevance to the state of affairs that this conference is meant to address. Um, in Daily Variety, the show business Bible, there was another handsome article uh, about an accomplished company active in the documentary field. Atlas Media, the article went, one of the most active producers of nonfiction programming for a dozen cable networks, has set up a new division to develop and produce theatrical documentaries. That's promising enough. The article went on, the first feature-length project put together with Voom HD networks will focus on a behind-the-scenes look at Meatloaf as he goes about prepping for an 18-month worldwide tour. This is at a time when the Learning Channel, the Learning Channel, uh, originally conceived of by founder John Hendricks with such promise, is now officially called TLC in Discovery's Branding Bible and showcases programs like What Not to Wear and Miami Inc., a show about tattoos, when the news doesn't tell us anything about the world we live in or what we are doing in it, and when the U.S. military, our own government, has effective last week cut off the access of all of our soldiers in Iraq to MySpace, YouTube, PhotoBucket, and MTV.com, a move redolent less of a Secretary of Defense named Gates than a General Secretary named Gomulka in a closed society from a land and a time far, far away. Imagine for a minute a world instead where all of us in this room and the organizations that, um, large and small, we represent are stakeholders in the future of nonfiction, where faculty, librarians, archivists, curators are passionately on the same side uh, uh, as leading producers, directors, and distributors, and the millions of consumers out there hungry for education and for American and world culture, and where video is as easy uh, to create and distribute and annotate and repurpose as a piece of email is today. Imagine a, a world where university education and some of the projects you will hear about this morning can connect um, to the outside world at various levels for intelligent contributions, uh, recognizing that the thousands of Columbia faculty, students, alumni, and friends out there notwithstanding, the thousands of MIT, Yale, UC Berkeley, Case Western, Michigan State, 
faculty, students, alumni, and friends out there notwithstanding, uh, even the thousands of Cornell faculty, students, alumni, and friends out there notwithstanding, uh, there are by any kind calculation more smart people outside the university walls uh, and university firewalls than inside of them. And imagine a world where the paths between academic media productions, archival uh, resources worldwide, the talents and experiences of producers, directors, and cinematographers, and the public are paved, swept, and illuminated like runways at an airport in the morning. This is the uh, world we are going to be investigating in some detail over these next two days, with presentations from stakeholders, from non-commercial institutions, uh, and private enterprises and government agencies concerned with its improvement describing a set of common concerns, common obstacles, and uh, emerging solutions for improving the field of educational video, a field less than 100 years old, whose systems are not yet entrenched like the worlds of print, and whose future we can influence for the better. Um, so I would like to open with five general points about today's media and technology environment and say a couple words about the structure of our meeting to my uh, five points. First, um, demand for online video worldwide has exploded. Over 100 million videos are watched on YouTube alone every day. The top 10 video streaming sites uh, now stream some 7 billion videos a month. That's 10 million a minute. And BitTorrent, the internet protocol that facilitates online sharing and distribution of video and audio, uh, is the number one file format in use on the internet worldwide. These aren't just people filming David Hasselhoff chundering or swinging their house cats around by the tail. Um, they are accessing university lectures, uh, information, and resources that can, in fact, make us feel proud, and all things being equal safe, to be their neighbors. Second, um, the opportunities to produce video have exploded. Teenagers, groups of all ages, but teenagers especially, are producing and posting rich media online in numbers that are growing exponentially. Over 70,000 videos go up on YouTube every day, for example. Young people in the United States and worldwide mimicking what we do when we cut and paste casual text from a website or an email or a Word document now believe they have a veritable video access mandate, a new almost inalienable right to work with video, to access it, cut it, paste it, change it, post it, much as with text online. My colleagues Mark Phillipson and Jonah Boswitz have riffed on the fact that last year Stanford law professor and Creative Commons founder Larry Lessig, uh, never a shy one about identifying a trend, declared spectacularly after a presentation that featured several video mashups from young producers that text, text is dead, that the written word has become the Latin of our modern times, that the ordinary language, the vulgar or vernacular language, the new language of the street is video and sound and that the software suites that facilitate video and sound editing, Apple's iMovie, Adobe's Premiere, the others listed here, including open source video editing tools as well, are the new essential tools of speech in the digital age. What Lessig calls a shift in uh, production and use patterns, from read-only to read-write engagements with video, now result in uh, millions of original new videos and mashups of classic material being posted online every week. According to one estimate, almost half of all video online today is user-generated. That's a remarkable statistic. 
Walt Mossberg of the Wall Street Journal has opined that everyone uh, now can be a video producer, and he tells us that most every computer package on a Mac or Windows now comes with elemental video editing software and a camera, and we can buy additional software for a few hundred dollars. The Financial Times has declared with the looming of YouTube, uh, from whom uh, Obadiah Greenberg will speak to us today, and with the arrival of Juiced, the new video service from the founders of Skype and Kazaa, whose director of business development will speak to us today, that the democratization of video distribution is now underway. Uh, their access, and this is the third point, is undeniable. First to professional resources, moving image archives, uh, millions of hours of audio and video around the world. Um, uh, and we will hear from several of these uh, curators of these archives today. And then to everything. Um, as you can see from this slide, over the next 13 years, an iPod or a device its size will be able to hold a year's worth of video by 2012, all the commercial music ever created by 2015, and all the content ever created in all media by 2020. Shrek 3 is already online today. And uh, by the time my youngest child, Charlie, who is six, enrolls at Columbia, an iPod or a device its size will be able to hold all the human knowledge ever created in all media. Whatever that device is, you can bet it will have a camera and a microphone on top of it. So my fifth and final point is that the um, legal and economic constructs around all of this are changing too. Uh, my colleague Eric Mattis at the center told me yesterday that Chris Anderson's new book contract at Hyperion, uh, from the, Chris Anderson from The Long Tail, the editor of Wired, is for a volume called Free to be delivered in 2008. And on his blog, Chris is asking people which subtitle they like better. Free, the story of a radical price, zero. Free, how zero, zero, zero changed the world. Free, how companies get rich by charging nothing. Free, the economics of abundance and the marketplace without money. Free, the past and future of a radical price. I kind of like five, he says. What do you think? We will hear from Eric Saltzman at Creative Commons, Josh Nathan, General Counsel at WNET 13, and others here on both days about new initiatives in this area and legal regimes emerging to cover education and public use more generally. All of this uh, suggests that it is time now to take the temperature of rich media. Now at the start, at the heart of this meeting is the university uh, and its work at the intersection of video education and open culture. On any given day at the center, my colleagues here will be transcoding classic silent films for a class in the School of the Arts, perfecting a video editing tool to allow the comprehensive manipulation of moving images for assignments, working in the School of Social Work with archival video from the Cambodian killing fields, filming new assets in a mock AIDS intervention, digitizing an interview with an English professor about Ralph Ellison, shooting B-roll of the Apollo Theater and the churches and synagogues in Harlem, video recording teachers teaching children to count at Teachers College, or judging documentaries for the DuPont Awards at the same university that also administers the Pulitzer Prizes and the Bancroft Prizes in history. That energy is huge. But at the same time, the uh, particular suite of challenges that universities and other educational institutions face in the digital uh, video age 
requires some new and profound examination and will benefit from ongoing proofs and descriptions of best practices being compiled, published, and consistently improved and updated. So this meeting features 45 speakers over two days. Maurice and uh, his team have provided us opportunities to enter comments about the presentations online in case we don't have time to razz our speakers while they're up here at the podium. And, and please, take advantage of this, uh, um, those of you who care to, with your uh, laptops. You can enter these track back comments on your agenda. Lunch will be served on both days. A cocktail reception will be held tonight here. Food is outside. Um, bathrooms are right on this floor, um, et cetera. We are fortunate to have the uh, greatest speakers working on these topics, uh, beginning to address their experiences here with us, their challenges um, in the following fields. Uh, university productions, educational productions outside the academy, distribution options and best practices for educational video, rights and key legal considerations for producers, distributors, and consumers, technology issues at the intersection of video and education, archiving, preservation best practices, archiving access best practices, teaching and learning best practices at the heart of the heart of the heart of this meeting, research and scholarly communication best practices, and finance best practices uh, towards sustainability and self-sustainability. When the people who are represented in this room, educators and public broadcasters, public broadcasters and public libraries, work closely together, when cultural institutions and uh, private enterprises can fashion useful agreements over cultural heritage materials, stimulated by educators, educators like Frank Moretti, with a nudge from an occasional mediator like Jeff Eubois, we can see some great things happen. Here's a clip meant to demonstrate uh, just a bit of that. Uh, it's from an interview that we recorded at USC late last year for a project that we are doing, trying to harvest hundreds of hours of film about Alzheimer's. It's directed by a Columbia DuPont award-winning filmmaker. Um, it's shot by a, a Sundance award-winning cinematographer. And this is Roberta Diaz, Bobby Brinton, professor of molecular pharmacology and toxicology uh, at USC, director of the STAR Science Education Program there, and head of the Pharmaceutical Sciences Center. The video of a neuron, and you begin to see a neuron that looks beautiful. It's healthy, it's plump, it has these beautiful arbors and neural connections, and it's connected, even in a cell culture. Neurons want to talk to each other. They want to connect. They want to create those neural circuits that say, we can do amazing things together. We can make videos, we can find ways to prevent Alzheimer's disease, we can do this. And then you begin to see what happens when you put just one of the degenerative insults of Alzheimer's disease, this beta amyloid peptide, and you begin to see the cell. At first, the network begins to degenerate. I know the processes begin to grow old before your very eyes. And then they shrink. 
the cell body completely implodes and now begins its transforming reality of dying and dying in a way that won't create more havoc by its dying. It's an implosion. And then you begin to see the results of not only that dying, that cell dying, but the other cells in the network progressing and dying. So that when one of them dies, that one neuron dying is a message and that in other components of the neural network begin to degenerate. The network begins to die. And with it, who we are. Now hopefully that won't happen to any of us during this meeting. Um, try to keep it stimulating enough. Um, and uh, with that, uh, I'd like to thank you again for coming and maybe we can invite our next panel up